I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we'll begin reading in verse 2. We are going to read through verse 53 this morning. This is Stephen's sermon and uh, the... uh, Without the final aspect of his vision, you're not going to get that far. In fact, I was telling David this might be a world record for me to be able to do 52 verses in one sermon, but we're going to give it every effort. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. I'll be reading the New King James Version, as is our custom. God's Word declares, and he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on, but even when Abraham had no child. He promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppression and oppress them 400 years. The nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, says God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that... There was grain in Egypt. He sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him. Seventy-five people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor the father of Shechem. When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at the saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. 
I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now I come. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother and him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship. I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua in the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not live in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? As has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Let's go, Lord, in prayer this morning as we get into our text this morning of Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, the leadership of Israel in the days of the apostles. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We commit our time now to you, and we need your help to understand your word, to apply it to our lives. We need your spirit to be active, um, both in uh, my life to communicate your truth, but also in each one of our lives that we might hear it. Having heard it, that we might receive it. And allow it to impact our lives, not as just historical record, but we might place ourselves within these texts and be guarded in our hearts from the accusation that it levels against us and against those who call themselves by your name and yet may not be one of yours. And Lord, we pray that you might find none of such here. And that where that has begun to creep in, that we might be guarded from it. And we need your help. And we thank you for it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Stephen has been drug in now with some accusations, and he's going to address those accusations. <clears throat> he's going to address them uh, through a historical narrative that every person in the court knows very well. Yet they are necessary for him to really draw the conclusions that he's going to draw. That he put them in perspective, and the perspective he presents is a very powerful one, uh, and it cannot be resisted. And we get a flavor of what he was engaging people with uh, out of the Old Testament. A flavor of how he was 
speaking of Christ and of the temple and of Moses, the law, and we saw last week uh, the accusation that was brought against him that it was a twisting really of his message. Here we get the full force of it. And uh, what often, every time I read it, I keep getting caught at the end with the suddenness and the directness of the application part of the message. That it's summarized in just a few verses and yet cuts everyone to their heart. And we, to some degree, have lost uh, that boldness to just uh, level people with the truth. And uh, we are tiptoers of the gospel. We've been trained in that, not just as Christians and churches, but as a society, we have been trained to tiptoe around people. When I was growing up, my parents had a saying, whenever we would easily be offended, is why do you have your feelings spread out all over the ground? How many of you grew up with that saying? How many of you grew up saying that to your kids? None of you. That was just my home. Wow. Okay, I thought that was the experience of everybody. Apparently it's just mine. So we were always called that if we were all pouty-faced because somebody offended us, that it was our problem, not theirs. Why are you walking around with your feelings spread out all around you? That is, you have this great wide band of feelings that everyone expected to tiptoe around. And, of course, um, that was a philosophy within our home that uh, uh, stomping around was okay. The problem would only be if uh, people's feelings were spread around. So you learn to tuck those in and not get easily offended. And to tell you the truth, that served me well in the ministry um, because... Uh, people like to stomp on pastors sometimes, um, and sometimes without even realizing they're doing it. And some of my family you might know, get offended, and I don't. I just figured if I offended, it's because my feelings are spread out all over the ground. So don't let your feelings get spread out. Well, Stephen is stomping on people. Um, and he's not stomping on them just uh, out there on the edges. He's walked right up to them, right in their faces, and... Uh, just uh, started crunching toes right there. And we have lost track of that kind of ministry of uh, being willing to confront people in this manner. And I am confident that there are many who are not in our church today because of their feelings being crushed in the midst of being confronted with the truth of God's Word. Well, no different here in this context Stephen's message is true, and that they can't deny. But they do not like its conclusions. So he's going to defend himself. The The statement that they made it to stir up a mob was that Stephen speaks blasphemous words against Moses and God. That was one false testimony that was intended to stir up the mob. Now we get before the learned men, uh, the leaders of Israel, the priests, the scribes, the elders, uh, those that know the law and they have different false witnesses <clears throat> who come forward and say, he speaks blasphemous words against this holy place, referring to the temple mount and the law. And of course, we can see the connection between Moses and the law and probably a good connection between God and the temple. After all, it was the Jewish contention. This was the abode of God. This was the, where God met man. And so we can see the correlation there. And so Stephen is going to pick up and very quickly address this, not by starting at Moses, because that is now where Israel starts. Israel's claim, of course, goes all the way back to Abraham. And he wants to walk us through some of the history. <coughs> Excuse me. So we can see the development of God's relationship with Israel and Israel's response to that that there were individuals who they name and love to name, like Abraham and like Moses, like Jacob. They love to name these men, but they are not the norm in the history of Israel. They are the exceptions. They are the men of faith. 
who trusted in God and walked in Him. And even they had some struggles of faith along the way that Stephen is going to remind the people of. In the midst of looking at the leadership of Israel, we're going to see him uh, referencing on a regular basis how men responded to that leadership. How did men respond to these great men of faith that you all tout as your forefathers? We all want to identify those great men of faith. We don't we aren't always quite so ready to identify ourselves with the body of people that followed them. And so it is, by the way, even today in Christianity, we look down through church history and we see men identifying themselves with, with uh, those that have been noted uh, for their faith, for their doctrine, for their leadership in Christianity over the centuries. And he'll even call themselves by those men's names. You know, I am this, I'm that, I'm that. Uh, and we don't often, though, see ourselves recognizing that those men were singular in many of their communities and eras, that the majority of the people around them were not in that truth. They were not living righteously. They were not in God's word. They were largely ignorant of it. And in some instances, that ignorance allowed the uh, opportunity for error to be brought in in large measures. So we find Stephen wanting to address not just the leaders that everyone names, but the ones that followed them. And it's there that Stephen wants to put a pressure point upon his generation of Israel. He begins by talking to them as brethren and fathers, recognizing their authority. Uh, And again, his focus is not on a new God, but on the same God, the God of glory. This is the one, and he has been active. He could have gone back to creation, but his accusation is limited here. So he wants to go back to Israel and Abraham, its origin. He says, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. I do not deny that. I am not speaking of a different God. I am not in any way undermining this God. He is the God of glory. He is the one who has been active and working among men throughout history, not only of Israel, but of the nations. That he is the one true and living God. And it is he that called Abraham out. It is he that that directed him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and and into Haran and then from Haran into the land of Canaan. And God placed him there and gave him these tests of faith to see are you genuinely a man who will follow me and trust in me. And and Abraham passes those tests of faith. He fails a couple of them um, when he calls, you know, twice with his wife that he was concerned about being killed so someone could take her from him. Um, so he has some some issues uh, along the way as well. But but by and large, we find his life characterized by a man who is willing to follow God into the unknown uh, because God said so. And God blesses that and recognizes that. And yet in the midst of God leading him, we find that God leads him to a place, verse 5, that he has no inheritance. He's leading him to a land that he doesn't own. He says not even to put a foot on. He doesn't even have a a place to put his dwelling, really. He doesn't own any of it. He's going into a foreign land, a strange land. Yet God says, this is the land that will be your inheritance. But Abram, in all of his days there, did not really fully see the promise. He didn't experience that. In fact, not only did Abram not experience that, really, neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob. We really don't see that fully expressed until the days of Joshua, which he's going to rehearse for us at the end of his, towards the end of his message. And so here's a man who we say, well, God gave it to Abraham. Well, he gave it to Abraham's descendants, technically. What God declared is that I have a plan for your life. And Abram accepted that plan even though he never saw it fulfilled in any of his days, outside of the fact that he did get an heir, he did receive that son, but he did not see the the 
land and the sun, moon, and the, you know, that, that you're going to be numbered like the stars and you're going to have this, this grand possession. He did not see that. In fact, here's what God did tell him in verse 6. It says, His descendants would dwell in a foreign land and they would bring them into bondage and oppression three, for 400 years. And so even in the midst of this promising, God says now, the promise is, is, is a long-range one. <laughs> it's going to go for your descendants. And in the midst of that, he says, listen, um, you're not going to take possession quite yet. And there's a reason, by the way. Um, the reason is kind of interesting. Stephen doesn't talk about it here. But if you go into Deuter- uh, Genesis 15, where this was discussed between him and Abraham, he actually gives the reason why it's going to be so long. And the reason has nothing to do with Israel. It has nothing to do with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It has nothing to do with any of them. It has to do with God waiting for the Amorites to sin enough to judge them. Isn't that weird? So God's going to hold off on fulfilling the promises to Abraham's descendants for at least 400 years. Now, we know that that's going to turn into more like five, six hundred years because you're going to have the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, and Jacob is going to be, what, a hundred years old when he gets to Egypt, something like that. He's going to be pretty old when he's there. And so you're looking at, at nearly six hundred years before we're going to see any kind of fulfillment and then add another forty because of Israel's disobedience and the wilderness wanderings. You're going to see hundreds of years before the promise is fulfilled. But God is the God of glory. And to him, 100, 600, 700 years is, is less than a day. Right? Doesn't Peter tell us that, you know, God, a thousand years is a day? A day is a thousand years? I mean, for God, that's, that's how he works. He works in the macro as well as in the micro. And so as he's working details out in this one man's life, and this one man has a struggle, that while God has given us all, give all these promises that stretch down the road for hundreds of years, Abraham can't see it. And in the conversation there in Genesis 15, what does Abraham say? Um, how can any of this be? Because we have an immediate problem. Uh, the heir of my house isn't even of my blood. One of my servants is the heir of my house. So God, you got all these big macro plans for my descendants, but I don't have one yet. And I'm getting kind of ancient. You're going to have to do something. And God comes in, of course, intervenes and says, oh, I'm going to do something. Abraham, of course, wasn't quite patient enough, was he? Took matters into his own hands. Compliments of his wife, who insisted on it. And ladies, I got to tell you something: um, that you can make your husbands do things, just like Eve had Adam eat of that. Your husbands will do things for you because they love them that they know are wrong. Because they love you, they'll do them for you, even when they don't have a clear conscience about it. And I think this is one of those examples when Abram takes Hagar at the insistence of Sarah. God comes in and intervenes and Sarah becomes pregnant and, and Isaac is born and the promise is, is initiated and now God wants to find out if Abram really still believes in the macro work of God and says, go sacrifice him. I've met the micro that you're concerned about, the immediate problem that you're so worried over, that you that you say, well, none of the macro is possible because I have this micro problem right now. God says, let's see if you still believe in the macro by sacrificing the micro. Take this one son and sacrifice him. And again, Abraham's test is, faith is tested. And, and that testing, he passes on this occasion. And, and God honors it and says, he accepted it by faith, and that faith is counted for him, credited to him as righteousness. 
But in the midst of all of this wonder, we, we find that God says you're going to have 400 years of slavery, essentially, in a foreign land. It's not part of your possession. All because the people Abraham's living around right now, who generally have a pretty good relationship with Abraham, don't they? If you look at Abraham's relationship with the Amorites and the others around him, um, even with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, they're, they're, they liked Abraham. Remember what he did for them? They got carried away slaves, and he went up and freed them all just to get his nephew Lot. I was going to say cousin, but nephew Lot out of slavery. And so he had a good relationship with them, and, and you look at them, and they say, oh, just come and be part of us. Even Jacob, when he goes, just come and be part of us. He says, no, God's calls to be apart from you. And so the sin of the Amorites there, even in, in Salem, and, and we find Melchizedek coming out of Salem and to uh, meet Abram coming back from rescuing the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and we find uh, these individuals, but yet there is a seed of sin there that is beginning to uh, reek before God. But God says it's not time yet. It's got to be filled up. And so... To allow time for the Canaanites to get as wicked as they were going to get, God says, you're going to have to spend some time somewhere else. Because I don't want you to be poisoned by their wickedness. So I'm going to put you down a place that doesn't like sheep and shepherds. I'm going to stick you down Egypt. I'm going to stick you there for 400 years. We look at this and we say, well... In Stephen's description, he wants them to understand that all of this was God's macro plan, that he had a plan for Israel. And this is really God's description with Abraham that occurred before there was any Moses. When we go back and we talk to the Jewish people today, we go back to Abraham and we find that there was no law. There was no temple. There was no Moses. There was no Ten Commandments. There were none of those things. And really, up until that point, there wasn't really in circumcision. And at that point, Abram believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. That this is the foundation of faith for the existence of the nation of Israel and the people there goes back to Abram and his walk of faith before God apart from the law. And this is something that the Jews couldn't handle. This is irresistible. You can't miss it. In the chronology of Abram's life, you cannot miss the fact that before circumcision, he was counted righteous before God. Before any of the law, before Isaac, before any of that, Abram was righteous before God because he believed him. Believed him enough to get up and move to a place he'd never seen and to wait on a macro promise of God that would be well beyond his life. He was going to trust God for something that wasn't going to come for hundreds of years. Up front, God told him, it's going to be hundreds of years before it's all fulfilled. But I have a plan. I'm plan for your descendants. And Abraham believed God. And so while Israel was investing so much in Moses and so much in the law, what Stephen does just short-circuits it right away and says, listen, the covenant of circumcision was given to Abraham, but it was after God spoke to him. It was after all of this, after this relationship had been established, after God had made all these promises, then came circumcision. And this Stephen brings forward and says in verse 8, Then he gave him the, circum- the, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac, circumcised him the eighth day. Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob, the twelve patriarchs. Twelve patriarchs, of course, um, are great examples for us to follow, aren't they? Let's talk about ten of them. Became envious of their one brother, Joseph, sold him into slavery. Let's talk about the majority of Israel. All right? We're into the fourth generation, right? You have Abraham, and you have Isaac, and you have Jacob. Now you have the patriarchs. 
So we're just a few generations and uh, into this, and we already got some issues. And those aren't all the issues. This is just the high sampling of some of the issues with the patriarchs. And what do the patriarchs do? Well, they sold Joseph into Egypt, but at the end of verse 9, God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor uh, and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. And so God was at work, and now having completed all this uh, initiation of it, we look like, wow, you know, we've got, we've got 12 patriarchs now, and uh, we've got multiple nations, not only because of um, <sighs> Hagar's kid, Ishmael, not only because of Ishmael being another nation, but we also have twins born, and so we have Esau being another nation, the Edomites. And so the idea that there are going to be many nations coming out of Abram is true, but also out of Sarah comes many nations. And we find that here we have the, the identification of Jacob, and now the patriarchs, and it looks like, well, we're on our way. Now we're talking. We're talking 12 boys. Now we're on our way to forming a nation. We've got 12 boys I don't know if the Leachmans are planning on starting a nation or not, but they're halfway there. Um, well, not quite. They're a third of the way there. He needs more wives to take care of that, but no, he doesn't. Because um, then he couldn't be a pastor here. Cause, so. so he's got boys, and we've got everything in line, but there's a problem. When we start looking at these boys in the land, there are some issues. They're starting to have interaction with the women and men of the land, with the idols of the land. And so, as God declared way back to Abram, the macro, here we go, we're going to have to go into a foreign land. And Joseph says it best, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He needed to get all of us out of the land of Canaan for a season, because in these next 400 years, this place is going to go to pot. And I'm not talking marijuana. I'm talking about sin. Horrible sin. Such sin over the next four years that God is going to give the okay to slaughter every man, woman, and child among them. Kill them all. There is The idea that there is a seed of good in man is pretty foreign to the Bible. And so to guard Israel from that, they... Send them down to Egypt. What you meant for evil, God did for good. To guard you, to deliver you. And we have that description of God's deliverance. And of Abraham's faith, of Jacob's faith, of Joseph's faith. And these are the highlights, but the majority there were following after that. And then we finally come to Moses. And, of course, this was the big accusation, the law or Moses You're attacking him. And again, we have him presenting us with the historical narrative of Moses. Unless you think that's all that's here, you've missed the point. He has pulled out certain aspects that are going to be very important to his application. Number one is that Moses saw himself already at 40 years old that he could help his people. At 40 years old, Moses recognized his Jewishness. He recognized that he has an inside track because of his training in Pharaoh's house. And he goes out as a 40-year-old and says, maybe it's time for me to exert some of this influence and ability and talent and access to the system that God has granted me and do it on behalf of my people. And look how Stephen describes it here. It says in verse 23, we'll pick up. It says, now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. He, he, it came, he wanted to do something. He wanted to be active. He wanted to deliver them, really. He wanted to make their lives easier. And he went out there, and as he saw what was going on, he wanted to defend them, and in avenge in verse 24, they oppressed. And he struck down the Egyptians, willing to, to uh, do that act. And then verse 25 is really key to what we're going to get to at the end here. 
For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. And this is something we don't necessarily find in the Old Testament record. But God here has revealed this through Stephen, that Moses, kind of like Abram, remember Abram was confronted with the promise of God, kind of did it the wrong way, his own way first. We end up with Ishmael and all kinds of problems. Moses, as a 40-year-old, already had the impressions by God upon his life that he was raised for such a time as this to deliver God's people. And instead of waiting on the Lord, he takes matters into his own hands a little bit. Well, a lot. He kills an Egyptian. That's pretty much a lot, not a little. Um, And kills someone, kind of like, you know, taking a second gal and giving birth isn't a little taking into your own hands. That's a big thing, too. And so they does this act. But notice what he says. He thought the impression that God has put upon him, certainly his brethren should see it. Listen, just like Joseph was raised up and elevated in Egypt to rule it, look where God has put me. I'm in Pharaoh's house. I have authority here. I could be the next Joseph. God could be using me. And so it already was in Moses' heart and in his mind. But then he was confronted with something at the end of the verse. And this is important. But they, that is the Israelites, did not understand. Instead, they fight each other. And then when Moses tries to intercede and say, what are you doing fighting each other? It's bad enough the Egyptians beat on you. Why do you beat on one another? And instead of responding to him and letting him lead them, they accuse him. And fear grips his heart. Oh, they don't understand. They don't want to deliver. They don't want me to save them. They don't want me to help them. They are rejecting me. And in fact, they're bringing into question the entirety of who I am and and in the position that I hold, and they come in and says, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You're going to kill me like the Egyptian? And Moses like, whoa, okay. Uh, being the deliverer of the nation of Israel is not such a great thing. I'm out of here, goodbye. And he runs in fear. This is all historical narrative, record. But we see that while... Every Israelite leader there wants to talk about Moses and Abraham and Joseph and Joshua and all these great leaders. They forget that there were those ten brothers. They seem to forget that Moses had to deal with a rebellious people who didn't want to be saved from the get-go. And so God says, well, delivery put on hold, 40 years. So the wilderness wanderings aren't the first 40-year delay It was the second 40-year delay. Right here is a 40-year delay. Moses runs off. Finds himself in the land of Midian. God has to get his attention 40 years later. Guy's 80 years old now. I'm just a shepherd. What am I? Now he's humble enough to be used. And God intercedes and works through him. And God has to present himself to him. And we're given a wonderful description of God's uh, approach that Moses hears the voice of the Lord, that that the Lord has uh, a plan. And quickly, Stephen in verse 35 presents it again. This Moses whom they rejected. Do you get the theme? Are you picking up the theme? That Moses, the one that you hold up so high, um, remember that when he was 40, all of your forefathers rejected him. They didn't want him. They didn't want him as judge. They didn't want him as ruler. They didn't want him as leader. They didn't want him as savior. Nothing. We don't want you. Go back to Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh And Moses runs away. And so this Moses, 
whom they rejected, says this. Uh, What they said was, who made you a ruler and judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. He was the deliverer, but he was rejected by the mass. Israel themselves rejected him. They would rather fight each other than accept a deliverer. But yet it was the man that God wanted. And now this same Moses in verse 37, another key point in the development of Stephen's argument in his defense, this is that Moses. This is the same guy. The same guy. This hero of yours. You know, the one that you guys, forefathers, rejected. Forty years later, God has to get his attention at the burning bush. And that same Moses becomes the deliverer. But I want you to hear what this same Moses had to say about somebody else. This same Moses says this. Verse 37, The Lord your God will raise up for you a capital P prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Wow. This guy that walked through the wilderness, that had the law given to him before, all, all of, this is the guy. This guy who you elevate and the law that he gives to us, one of the things he said that you seem to continually ignore is that he says, listen, there is one to come who is a deliverer and a judge. Him you must hear. This law is only for the intermediate period between today and the day that that one comes. And then you have to stop listening to me and start listening to him. And hence Christ's words that I'm here to fulfill the law. It's done. It's been accomplished. He closes the book, sets it down, says, Today that has been accomplished in your midst. Can you imagine all the Israelites that are going, What? What did he just say? Now it's time for you to start listening to me. Because I am the one Moses spoke of. A great prophet will come. And and you'll have to start listening to him instead. And Stephen obviously is presaging within his message that the one to come is Christ. So there's... The message, the message comes from this leader that you tout and talk about, this Moses who says, listen, here's the law, but there's going to be one to come, and once he comes, he's going to be my replacement. And his words are going to replace these words of the law. Well, how did Israel do with the words of the law? Again, (laughs) they were rebellious. Right off the bat, they're already sacrificing to their God. To, you know, they make a golden calf. They, they're doing all these. They're, they're abandoning Moses as soon as he's out of town for a month. One month he's away and they're already fully invested in false worship. Oh, Aaron tries to manipulate it so that, well, if you, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. It's not the same God. It looks like the same God, but it's not. Isn't that great? I love how Christians do that still to this day. You know, we just, oh, I'm not talking about that God, just one that looks a lot like that one. Sounds a lot like that one. But we call him by Jesus, the name Jesus. We make Jesus into the image of a calf, much like Israel did with the God that brought them across the Red Sea. Of course, the other aspect of his accusation, he spoke against the temple. And he has just represented the fact that, listen, your patriarchs, your patriarchs um, did evil against Joseph. They were the envious ones. Your forefathers rejected Moses when he was 40. Your forefathers went out and sacrificed the calves and lived immorally before God and violate the law even as they received it. 
And then as far as this temple goes, we didn't have a temple always. Remember, Abraham didn't have a temple. Moses didn't have a temple. There was a tabernacle, and, and they made it by a pattern. They brought it with Joshua. And then David wants to build a temple, and God says, "Uh uh-uh, you're not building me a temple. I don't need a temple, um, but I'll let your son Solomon build me a temple. So apparently a temple isn't that critical to God. And in fact, later on in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66, we have uh, God saying, you think I live in temples? You think I need a house? I'm a little bigger than that. Anything you build... I made it. I made the stuff that you're building out of. My hand has made all things. And you're going to play, need to build a place for me to rest. And so again, this is the irresistible message of Stephen. Taking the thing, and instead of focusing their attention on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joseph, Joseph, Moses, and all and all of those things he says. Now let's look at the undercurrent that was there. The rebellion, the rejection, the error, the idolatry. And now we can see how abruptly he brings it right down in their own heads. He says, listen, um, you are perpetrating the exact same things that happened back then. Moses said you should be looking for a prophet. He's come. He did everything the Bible has said he was supposed to do. He has done all the prophets foretold, and you reject him. You resist him. And just like your forefathers persecuted the prophets, so you persecuted the just one. You murdered him. You betrayed him. The one that you're supposed to be listening to. You make such an investment in the law, but you haven't kept it. Because among and within the law is a declaration that there would one come who would supersede Moses. That Moses recognized when he comes, you're going to have to listen to him and not me. And you all have resisted that. You've rejected that. The Holy Spirit keeps confronting you with this. You're confronted with it. By Jesus himself, you're confronted with it from the other apostles, the apostles who came, and now you're confronted again by this guy. Why do you keep resisting the Holy Spirit? You've had all these opportunities to respond by faith and believe in this one just one that Moses talked about. The one who's rejecting Moses isn't me, it's you. The one who is destroying the law isn't me, it's you. You're not keeping it, and you're not keeping what it points to. You're the murderers. You're the lawbreakers. You're the persecutors. You are the resistors of God. You are the uncircumcised in your heart. And brethren, this message is kind of, boy, it kind of knocks you between the eyes right there, doesn't it? He concludes this whole message in three verses there. And... Um, you can just see him. I don't know if he had really long fingers or not. I just imagine he did. You, stiff-necked and uncircumcised heart. You are the ones. You are the murderers. Stop associating yourself with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Stop associating yourself with Joshua and all those. David and Solomon. Stop thinking that you are like them. Oh, no. You are like the ones who rejected them. You are the rejecters, the disobedient. And brethren, we're still in the same condition. That we still think that, and we hold up the the Bible stories of these individuals, and we look at them and we go, oh, wow, that's wonderful. Boy, wouldn't it be wonderful to be like them? And now we have another character to add to the list, a guy named Stephen, a deacon, uh, one of the seven. And we have one of the seven here that, that's just, his job is to make sure that the widows get what they need every week or every day. We tend to associate ourselves with them. 
instead of with the religious rejectors, the ones without faith. We want to associate ourselves with the faith of Abraham instead of Sarah. He says, i got another plan. Take Hagar. We tend to associate ourselves with Joseph instead of the ten. We're envious. Because we don't have a problem with envy here, do we? We tend to associate ourselves with the Moses instead of the idolatrous people. You see, we're really just like these in many respects because we're probably have more in common with the mass than with the singular individuals that the Bible elevates. We have some hope, though, in the midst of this message that I've overlooked. There are some who followed. There are those who followed Joshua into the land. And verse 46 is a great one. Describes that generation of Joshua, but also really all those who followed the Lord from Joshua through David. Verse 40 says, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. Really referencing David specifically, but the whole tenor of, of 44, 45, especially 45 and 46, was that, you know what, under Joshua there's a generation and God blessed them. And God gave them entry into the land and they conquered it and they had some hiccups, uh, some mistakes uh, with the Gibeonites and things like that, but um, God blessed them, that whole generation. And there were other generations between Joshua. Throughout the judges, we often focus on the fact that they kept running back to idols, but, but in the midst of that, there were also generations that gave themselves to God. They followed the leadership. They didn't reject the judges. They accepted them. Even in through Samuel. They reject a lot of times their children. They look at what happened to Gideon and his sons. Um, but they followed these men. And Joshua, all the way down, and then through to David. We have, you know, a generation there that really followed David. And there was a rebellion with Absalom. I'm not denying all that. But by and large, Israel wanted to go after and follow David. And it was secured under Solomon and this glory period of Israel and the building of the temple was really the culmination of of a season where not just leaders follow God, but everyone did. And this is what Stephen desires, and he sees that the leadership that God is using is not the priests, the scribes, and those that he is responding to. The leaders God is using are humble people, shepherds, and like he's done the history of Israel among the prophets. I love that God's favorite king, it seems, was the shepherd boy. That God's mouthpiece for delivering Israel was a shepherd man. And now that leadership is found not among the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and Sadducees, and, but now it resides a bunch, a bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, guys like that, nondescript, a guy like Stephen. And the question really that Stephen's confronting them with is, isn't it time that you submitted? Humbled yourself before God? Stop resisting and participate in a generation that God 
finds favor with. And that's ultimately what we want to see as a church, is that we are placed in a position, not just in leadership, but in our entirety, that God finds favor with. And that idea of finding favor is grace. That we are before God seeking His grace because we've humbled ourselves before Him and we've, and we've given ourselves entirely to Him, not just with lip service, and not, but with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that we've given ourselves to Him. And this is the requirement for God's blessing. But the preponderance of those who even call themselves Christians today are more related to those that did not understand. God wants them delivered out of Egypt. We would rather just be fighting and stay in Egypt. God wants us to singularly serve him not just serve him on Sundays and the God of Moloch the rest of the week. Their history has been largely also the history of the church. And so we are called again to humble ourselves, to not be stiff-necked, to not be uncircumcised in our heart and ears, to not be persecutors by saying, oh, you're just too fanatical, you're too radical. Who made you judge? And essentially, when we say that, we're really saying that to our Savior. Who made you judge? We hear that today in our society. Who made Christ our judge? We don't want him. And this is called stiff-neckedness, stubbornness, uncircumcised in their ears and hearts. That is, that they love their sin. They are resisting the Holy Spirit. And Stephen's call had an intended effect. It's effect we're going to study next week. Its intended effect occurred. But the outcome was not what Stephen wanted. There's an effect to confrontation. We're going to study it next week. But that does not guarantee an outcome that pleases us. The outcome, in fact, makes us sad. The message can't be compromised because the outcome isn't where we want. We cannot compromise an effect that is necessary to produce the right outcome. And that's where I see our message going in Christianity today, as I see it portrayed by the conversation of Christians and by the media use of the, the Christians using the media and how we employ it, that we are afraid to create the effect that will bring a true cause, a, a change, a true uh, conclusion, outcome. But this is the kind of message that we need that rehearses the generational sin that we are up against when we confront people with their sin. And today when I talk to many Christians, or many unbelievers, they don't see any generational sin. They're detached from it. Well, our forefathers were great Christian men and gave us a great Christian country and on and on it goes. And we have disconnected ourselves from our history of sin. Much like this generation had disconnected itself from their national history of sin. And so we are challenged to confront people in a very abrupt, forthright fashion and point the finger and say, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised. Resisting the Holy Spirit. Stop disobeying the truth and come to Christ. That's our message. Cannot be compromised and have the same outcome. 
to speak it will create an effect that we will not benefit from short-circuiting just because this outcome isn't the one we would have chosen. The effect was still necessary. doesn't guarantee an outcome, but without the effect that we're going to see next week, there cannot be a right outcome. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and again for a powerful message from a servant of yours not in his own wisdom, but in the wisdom of you and your word by your spirit. And Lord, that wisdom we know is still readily available. For your word has not changed. Wisdom is still granted to those who ask. And your spirit is as alive as ever. So Lord, we must conclude that it is on our part If there is a failing in this equation, it is here with us. As we heard last week, that we might be counted among the seven instead of the religious many. Help us, Lord, to be full of your Spirit. Allow him full access and then that we might fully live out what we claim to believe. To your honor, glory, and praise. By your grace and mercy, we pray these things. Amen.